welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the hepatobiliary module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And the operation or topics we'll be covering today are gallbladder adenomyomatosis, gallbladder polyps, and gallbladder cancer. So let's get started with gallbladder adenomyomatosis. It's a bit of a mouthful, but I thought it might just introduce us to these gallbladder topics today. So gallbladder adenomyomatosis is something you might see on an ultrasound report or in a pathology report after removing a gallbladder. It's relatively rare with 1% to 9% of patients having gallbladder adenomyomatosis. So what is this condition? It's a condition that's characterized by gallbladder thickening, which is due to two factors. The first is excessive epithelial proliferation, and the second is hyperplasia of the muscularis propria. These two features work together and lead to unfolding of the epithelial layer within the underlying muscular layer, and this causes small bile-filled sort of pouches, like little diverticulums within the muscular layer. And these little diverticulums are called Rokitansky-Ashkov sinuses, or RAS. The bile in those spaces may progressively be concentrated, and then the crystals can precipitate and they can cause calcification within them. And um, this is also contributed to by the chronic inflammatory reaction associated with this pathology. There's four main patterns of gallbladder adenomyomatosis, which have to do basically with the area that's involved. The first is localized, and this is the most common, where you get focal localized adenomyomatosis, which typically involves the fundus, and this might show up as focal thickening on the ultrasound. The second is segmental, which involves a larger portion of the gallbladder wall. This is typically the fundus and the distal third of the gallbladder, and that involved portion might look contracted and abnormal on imaging or macroscopically, but the rest of the gallbladder might appear normal. The third type is annular, which is where you get a ring of adenomyomatosis around the gallbladder, typically in the middle portion, and then this can contract down and give the gallbladder an hourglass shape. And the last is diffuse with involvement of the entire gallbladder. And this can lead it to look contracted all of the time, um, even after fasting. The pathogenesis of this condition is unclear. We know that it's associated with gallbladder stones and chronic inflammation. It's not thought to be a part of the progression to the development of gallbladder cancer. However, segmental adenomyomatosis is a risk factor for gallbladder cancer, and it's thought because this process is involved with a chronic inflammatory picture that that increases the risk of developing a gallbladder malignancy. How do these patients present? So these patients are typically asymptomatic, and often this finding is found at ultrasound or during a cholecystectomy or on the postoperative pathology report. On ultrasound, the findings of gallbladder adenomyomatosis are gallbladder wall thickening, and it can be in any of those patterns that we've just discussed. The outer gallbladder layer must appear sharp, and there should be a clear plane between the gallbladder and the liver present. And this is really important when you're trying to differentiate this condition from an invasive malignancy. 
Typically, you'll see small anechoic spaces, so dark spaces, and these represent the rokitansky ashoff sinuses. And these should be within the thickened gallbladder wall. And this is pathognomonic for adenomyomatosis. If there are crystals in these sinuses, then these may have intramural echogenic spots and a comet tail artifact behind the rokitansky ashoff sinuses. If there's a comet tail or calcification-filled RAS, then this is diagnostic before gallbladder adenomyomatosis. Obviously, a differential diagnosis for gallbladder wall thickening is gallbladder cancer. And I've already mentioned that you want to look for features that may not be consistent with adenomyomatosis and may instead push you towards a diagnosis of a malignancy. So this is if there's invasion into the liver or through that gallbladder wall. You might see um, uh, focal thickening that doesn't have those classic features of adenomyomatosis. And it's also very different, difficult to differentiate um, these cholesterol polyps and adenomyomatosis, and they can also coexist. The accuracy of differentiating um, adenomyomatosis from early stage gallbladder cancer with ultrasound it is about 91 to 94%. So relatively high, but when you think about gallbladder cancer, which we'll talk about later, it's something you really don't want to miss. Another way to look at the gallbladder is to do a contrast-enhanced ultrasound, which may increase the sensitivity in detecting these rokitansky ashov sinuses. Another imaging modality you could use is an MRI if you're suspicious that maybe this is not a straightforward pathology. And this is highly sensitive, but again, only has about a 93% accuracy in differentiating the two conditions. Um, the signal intensity of these sinuses varies widely depending on what's inside them. And so that makes it sometimes difficult to um, identify on MRI. A CT could be helpful if there was a large tumour and invasion into the liver or other organs. You might be able to see that on CT. And obviously a PET scan, if you're really highly suspicious, um, the tumours should be hot on PET, so this may help you exclude a malignancy. Some other differential diagnoses on imaging um, for adenomyomatosis include acute cholecystitis with gallbladder wall thickening, chronic cholecystitis, cholesterol polyps, and um, gallbladder cancer we've already mentioned. So if you do find gallbladder adenomyomatosis, what is the management? And to be honest, there's no clear or universally accepted guidelines. Obviously, if there's an underlying pathology, so symptomatic gallstones, for example, or acute cholecystitis, you would treat the patient as per that. And it's sort of just a little side note that they have adenomyomatosis. If you just find adenomyomatosis, this is a benign condition. So in general, you wouldn't suggest any management. However, if you're unclear of the diagnosis or you're suspicious that there's other features there that maybe this isn't straightforward adenomyomatosis, then you should do further imaging and maybe resect that patient or uh, send them to a HPB specialist to think about a resection to rule out a malignancy. And as I mentioned earlier, the segmental type gallbladder adenomyomatosis has a higher association with gallbladder cancer. And sometimes when you resect these patients, you might find a neoplastic foci within the wall thickening. So you might think if there's a large area and it's changing over time or the patient doesn't want uh, regular monitoring, maybe to uh, resect these. So now that we're all warmed up, let's move on to gallbladder polyps. 
So gallbladder polyps are present in about 3 to 6% of the population that undergoes ultrasound. The vast majority of polyps seen at ultrasound are actually cholesterol polyps and not true adenomatous polyps, but it's very difficult to distinguish between the two on imaging. About 1% of cholecystectomy specimens will contain an adenomatous polyp, and these are the polyps that do have a true malignant potential. The risk factors for malignancy in a gallbladder polyp include a polyp size of more than one centimetre, patients that are older, so more than 50 years old, a sessile appearing polyp, multiple polyps, and also if patients have a diagnosis of primary sclerosing cholangitis, in which case they have a much higher risk of developing a gallbladder cancer. The imaging of a gallbladder polyp typically starts with an ultrasound, and this is the modality of choice. It's got no radiation associated with it, is cheap, readily available, and can be repeated. Endoscopic ultrasound may be useful in differentiating true polyps and pseudopolyps, uh, but it's not used routinely in practice. It's obviously an invasive test. And contrast-enhanced ultrasound might be used more and more in the future as this can be useful to assess for internal vascularity of the polyp, which may help you differentiate a pseudo or cholesterol polyp from a true adenomatous polyp. The management of gallbladder polyps depends on three factors. The first is the size of the polyp. The second is if the patient has any symptoms relating to gallstones and also the presence of any risk factors, which we just discussed. So I'm just going to run through the guidelines that I use for when to and when not to resect a gallbladder polyp. So for gallbladder polyps that are less than six millimeters in size in a patient who doesn't have any of those risk factors, so they're not over 50, they don't have a sessile appearing polyp or multiple polyps, and they don't have PSC, then these patients should have a repeat ultrasound at one, three, and five years. And the guideline that I use is that if the polyp grows by two millimeters or reaches 10 millimeters, then the patient should have a cholecystectomy. For patients who have a gallbladder polyp that's less than six millimeters, so same size, but they do have any of those risk factors, then a more intense ultrasound follow-up regime should be followed. So that's an ultrasound at six months, then 12 months, then annually for five years. And again, if it grows by two millimeters or reaches 10, then they score a cholecystectomy. The next group to look at is gallbladder polyps that are six to nine millimeters in size. So patients with six to nine millimeter gallbladder polyp who don't have any risk factors, then they would have an ultrasound at six and then 12 months and then annually for five years. For patients with risk factors, they should have a cholecystectomy. So patients with a gallbladder polyp that's six to nine millimeters, but who are over 50, have a sessile appearing polyp, have multiple polyps or PSC, then they should undergo a cholecystectomy. The next group is patients with gallbladder polyps that are more than one centimeter in size. So patients who have a 10 to 20 millimeter gallbladder polyp, then these patients need a cholecystectomy. If the polyp's 10 millimetres, you also have to consider if they already have any existing signs of malignancy. And these patients you might want to discuss with a hepatobiliary team and maybe do further imaging, such as an MRI, to make sure that you're not missing a malignant component. For patients with a gallbladder polyp that's over 2 centimetres in size, these are almost always already malignant. So these patients should be treated as such. They should have staging with a CT, chest, abdo, pelvis, and a local staging with an MRI. 
And if they're going to have a cholecystectomy, then they need a cholecystectomy with a local resection, so a two-centimetre margin of liver, and also a lymphadenectomy. And if the patient's not able to undergo cholecystectomy for any reason, they should be discussed at an MDT. And last but not least for today's episode is gallbladder cancer. So gallbladder cancer, thankfully, is quite an uncommon cancer because the outcomes of this malignancy are typically poor unless it's caught at the very, very early stage. The only chance of cure is resection at that early stage of the cancer. Women are about three times as likely to contract gallbladder cancer as men are, and South America and India have the highest incidence. The risk factors for the development of gallbladder cancer include chronic inflammation. So this is in, usually in the setting of gallstones, primary sclerosing cholangitis, an anomalous pancreaticobiliary junction, a cholecystoenteric fistula, probably leading back to that inflammatory hypothesis, typhoid infection, gallbladder polyps, adenomatous polyps, as we've just discussed, and a porcelain gallbladder or a calcified wall. It was probably thought to be much higher risk in the past than we know that it is now, but in the case of a porcelain gallbladder, the incidence of gallbladder cancer is about 10%. The clinical presentation and diagnosis of gallbladder cancer is typically made at three different time points. The first is preoperatively, where a suspected gallbladder cancer is diagnosed and you might find a mass in the gallbladder, for example, on imaging. The second is intraoperatively, where you see an abnormality that makes you suspicious that this is a gallbladder cancer. And the last is postoperatively in the resection specimen. Three quarters of those patients that are found preoperatively are beyond the scope of resection. The clinical symptoms that they might present with include jaundice, which is quite an ominous finding, especially if there's no stones present, as it likely represents tumour involvement of the porta hepatis, either by direct extension of the tumour or extensive nodal disease. Half of these patients are probably unresectable, and it's a poor prognostic factor um, related to disease outcomes, so they're more likely to have advanced stage disease at presentation if they have jaundice. Weight loss occurs in about 20% of patients. Some patients may present with abdominal pain or you might feel an abdominal mass. Uncommon symptoms include duodenal obstruction, upper GI bleeding, hemobilia, and about 6 to 10% of Maritzi syndromes are actually gallbladder cancer. So that's something else to think about. From a histopathological point of view, the majority of gallbladder cancers are adenocarcinomas. The other types of malignancy you can get in the gallbladder are adenosquamous carcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas. The staging of gallbladder cancer is with the TNM AJCC staging system. Um, The T stage has the greatest impact on the prognosis of the disease and also determines the extent of surgery that is required. So just briefly to recap the normal histopathology of the gallbladder wall. So the internal layer is the mucosa, and then there is the lamina propria, the muscular layer, the muscularis propria, the perimuscular connective tissue, 
and the serosa. But there's only serosa over the external aspect of the gallbladder. There's no serosa along the border with the liver. And the perimuscular connective tissue is continuous with the liver parenchyma here. So it doesn't have to invade very deep to already be going through into the liver. So the T staging is TIS, which is carcinoma in situ, just in the mucosal layer. T1 is where the tumor invades either the lamina propria or the muscularis propria. So T1A is where it invades into the lamina propria and T1B is where it invades into the muscularis propria. T2 is divided into 2A and 2B. 2A is where the tumor invades the perimuscular connective tissue on the peritoneal side without involvement of the serosa. And T2B is where the tumor invades the perimuscular connective tissue on the liver side, but no extension into the liver. T3 is where the tumor perforates the serosa or directly invades the liver or one other adjacent organ or structure. This might be stomach, duodenum, colon, pancreas, amentum, or extrahepatic bile ducts. And T4 is where the tumor invades the main portal vein or hepatic artery or invades two or more extrahepatic organs or structures. The end stage is N1, where there's one to three regional lymph nodes involved, and N2, where there's more than four regional lymph nodes involved. And M1 is if there's distant metastasis. From a stage grouping point of view, stage one disease is T1, N0, M0. Stage 2A disease is T2A with no nodes or METs. 2B is T2B with no nodes or METs. Stage 3A is T3 with no nodes or METs. And stage 3B is T1, 2, 3 with N1. And stage 4A is T4 um, with or without nodes. And 4B is metastases. So let's move into how you work up a suspected gallbladder cancer. The aims of investigation are to assess the extent of local disease and to exclude distant metastatic disease. So any patient with biliary pathology or presenting with biliary symptoms will usually start with an ultrasound. An ultrasound may miss the diagnosis of gallbladder cancer in about 50% of patients. Some signs on ultrasound that this is a gallbladder cancer include focal thickening, loss of that plane between the liver, um, and more advanced lesions are much more likely to be picked up on ultrasound. If you're suspicious based on the ultrasound that something else is going on, like a malignancy, then further investigation is required. Typically, this will start with a CT scan. So this should be a CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis including looking at the portal, venous, and arterial phases in order to look at the extent of the disease in the liver and the porta hepatis and as well to look for any evidence of metastatic disease. You might see um, enhancing mucosa, which could suggest a mucosal malignancy, and you might see focal wall thickening, which is much like, more likely to be a malignancy if it's focal than if you have diffuse wall thickening. The accuracy of CT for differentiating between the different T stages um, is pretty low for T1 and T2 tumors, but does increase to 93% to tell the difference between T2 and T3 and 100% for T3 and T4 tumors. 
An MRI is also standard to assess the local uh, extent of disease. This is really good at assessing the T-stage evidence of any local invasion and also looking at the liver parenchyma for any evidence of metastatic disease. And it has pretty high sensitivity for picking up hepatic invasion, any vascular involvement, and also up to a 75% diagnostic rate for identifying lymph node metastases. PET scan can be used. I'm not sure if it's funded in Australia, but it's good for distant disease and will pick up more disease than a CT scan. And in one study I looked at, it changed the surgical management in 15 to 20% of cases. Staging laparoscopy is not a routine workup for a suspected gallbladder cancer, but it should be used if there's any suspicion of peritoneal disease. A couple of other points regarding workup of a gallbladder cancer. The thickness of the wall is actually quite an important indicator of whether you should be considering a gallbladder cancer. If the gallbladder wall thickening is more than 10 millimeters, then it's much more likely to be a malignancy than acute cholecystitis or a large polyp. And the mean thickness at diagnosis of a gallbladder cancer on ultrasound and CT in one study was 13 millimeters. So if you have a gallbladder wall thickness of more than 10 millimeters, you should be pretty suspicious that there might be a gallbladder cancer there. And the other thing is in the setting of a porcelain gallbladder, as I mentioned earlier, there's probably about a 10% rate of a porcelain gallbladder being a gallbladder cancer, which is 100 times the rate with simple cholelithiasis. So any patient with a porcelain gallbladder, really you should be able to justify at least doing a staging CT scan um, before surgery in these patients. So the next thing to think about is what if you're doing a gallbladder operation and you're looking at the gallbladder and thinking to yourself, mm, this doesn't look like a simple acute cholecystitis or a simple um, symptomatic gallstones. This could potentially be a gallbladder cancer. The intraoperative diagnosis of gallbladder cancer is about 0.3%. And the sensitivity of diagnosing a gallbladder cancer based on visual inspection of the gallbladder is between 80 and 90%. So trust your gut if you're looking at it and thinking that it doesn't look quite right. We will go into this a little bit more shortly, but in general, it's pretty unlikely you're going to pick up a really early lesion like a T1A or T1B lesion looking macroscopically at the gallbladder. So in these situations, you usually don't pick it up and you complete the operation. And most of the time that's actually curative. If you're looking at it and it looks really suspicious, you're more likely to be looking at a T2 plus lesion. And oncologically, these require larger operations. So in general, you need to balance the risk of doing an upfront major resection for a lesion that may ultimately end up being benign or diffusely metastatic with a sort of half-hearted cancer operation where you just take the gallbladder out, but they have to come back and complete the operation. So your options really are to leave the uh, procedure as a diagnostic laparoscopy and bail out, and then to get some imaging and stage the patient afterwards. Or if you've already committed to the operation because you've divided the duct and the artery, then you could take the liver adjacent to the gallbladder fossa with a energy device. 
There's no good data for this and no evidence for this, but at least you might end up getting an R1 margin, which is much better than an R2 margin. And in a tute with one of the senior surgeons um, that we had at our hospital, they were saying, obviously, bail out if you're highly suspicious and restage. But if you're committed, then this is probably better than doing nothing at all. Another thing to mention is if you're suspicious for a gallbladder cancer, you have to be really mindful not to spill any bile and also to document if you have spilt bile. Basically, if you spill the bile with a gallbladder cancer, you disseminate the tumor cells into the peritoneal cavity, and these patients have a much worse prognosis. So let's move to management of gallbladder cancer that you suspect preoperatively. So first, let's talk about the contraindications to surgery. These include distant spread of disease, such as to the peritoneum or discontiguous liver lesions. If there's tumor involvement of the hepatic vasculature or biliary tree, that would preclude complete resection. And presence of disease in distant lymph nodes. So this includes peripancreatic, periduodenal, celiac or superior mesenteric nodes. It's also probably worth mentioning that after you've done your imaging and staging, it's not a routine thing to biopsy a suspected gallbladder cancer. There's a high risk of false negatives and also a risk of spreading the disease to the peritoneum. And again, staging laparoscopy isn't standard, but may be considered if you are still suspicious after imaging, but not sure enough that you want to proceed with a major resection. If there is no peritoneal or hepatic metastases and the patient has resectable disease, then the management of gallbladder cancer is definitive surgery to resect the tumor and to try to achieve an R0 resection. And that R0 resection is more important than almost any other factor in the outcome of patients. It should include a resection of the gallbladder and the surrounding liver parenchyma and also a regional lymphadenectomy that should include removal of the nodes in the porta hepatis, the gastrohepatic ligament, the retroduodenal space. And this will allow accurate staging and also determine whether or not those patients need any adjuvant treatment. The type of operation um, in general depends on the stage of the tumour. So for T1A tumours only involving the lamina propria, these are often found incidentally at lap coli, and the lap coli is curative, so that patient is surgically complete. The risk of lymph node metastases in this situation is very low, less than 4%, and there's no indication to perform any further excisions, such as excision of the port sites or anything like that, but there is a small risk of recurrent disease due to that rate of lymph node metastases. For T1B tumours, so those were involving the muscularis propria, these should theoretically be cured by cholecystectomy, but there are reports of recurrences and death after cholecystectomy only. So these patients really should be discussed at an MDT. There's limited evidence, but they may be recommended to have further surgery with resection of the liver parenchyma around the cystic plate and also a lymph node dissection. For T1B, the risk of nodes is still very low, but it is higher than T1A. So if a patient is going to undergo further resection and lymphadenopathy, it's important to caution them that there is quite a high probability that you won't find any residual disease after surgery. 
These patients have a 10-year survival of between 75 and 85%. For T2 tumours, the operation recommended is for resection of the gallbladder with a 2cm margin of the adjacent liver, as well as a lymphadenectomy plus or minus bile duct resection if that's required to obtain a negative margin on the cystic duct. So often in this surgery, the surgeon will take a uh, frozen section of the cystic duct margin and take further cystic duct or bile duct if required. For T3 and T4 tumours, the risk of lymph node disease is much higher. It's over 50%. And these patients may require extended resections depending on the location of the tumour in the gallbladder and the involvement of adjacent structures. These patients should definitely be discussed at an MDT. And remember, the aim is to achieve an R0 resection. So if it is possible to do an operation, reconstruct them, and remove all the tumour on block with negative margins, then this could be attempted. This may require quite extensive surgery, such as division of the left hepatic duct and excising the biliary confluence with an associated right hepatectomy or extended right hepatectomy. And if the right hepatic duct or biliary confluence is involved, then an extended right hepatectomy is mandatory in order to achieve a complete resection. So this is definitely very major surgery. These patients may be considered for neoadjuvant chemotherapy in order to provide an opportunity to assess their tumour biology prior to proceeding with major resection. So what do you do if the diagnosis is found postoperatively? So in some patients, they will have their cholecystectomy and then in the postoperative specimen, there'll be a diagnosis of gallbladder cancer. So essentially, unless it is a T1A malignancy, which means you are surgically complete, patients should be referred to a HPB centre for consideration of further surgery. It's been shown that delayed radical surgery doesn't negatively influence the patient's overall outcome, and it does improve the five-year survival rates from around 19 to 61%. So first thing to do is to stage the patient with a CT scan or MRI. In the acute postoperative setting, postoperative inflammatory changes may be difficult to distinguish from tumour, and this may actually mean that the patient ends up with a more extensive operation to ensure an R0 resection. But you should still undergo MRI and CT staging chest abdo pelvis. The type of operation required then really depends on the stage of the tumour, as I've discussed already, and sticking to that principle of obtaining an R0 resection. If the gallbladder was ruptured during the operation, you would still continue to treat them as per their pathology report, um, but being mindful that they may have a higher risk of peritoneal recurrence. The last thing to talk about is adjuvant treatment. So there really is limited data on whether or not we should be giving gallbladder cancers adjuvant treatment post-operatively. In general, if they have a completely resected T1A um, tumor, then they probably don't need any adjuvant treatment. If they have a completely resected T1B or greater disease, these patients might be considered for some adjuvant treatment. But again, that would be MDT discussion dependent. Some higher risk features such as a R1 resection, a node that's positive or multiple positive nodes, or if there's a margin that's positive, then these patients will probably be recommended for some adjuvant treatments such as local control with radiotherapy and also systemic chemotherapy. 
There's only really been one trial, which was a phase two trial, looking at adjuvant chemotherapy, and this gave 5-FU and mitomycin to patients and improved their five-year overall survival from 11 to 20%. Um, and other options for chemo include gemcitabine and cisplatin or oxaliplatin. Chemotherapy can also be used for palliative treatment for unresectable disease. However, it doesn't have very good response rates. And typically, gemcitabine and cisplatin or oxaliplatin would be used. Patients may also need surgery to palliate symptoms, um, such as an ERCP or a PTC in the setting of biliary obstruction. And that's it for gallbladder adenomyomatosis, gallbladder polyps, and gallbladder cancer. Thanks so much for listening today. As always, please remember to rate, leave me a review, and subscribe to the podcast so it's easier for others to find. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>